Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with Brian Dorries of Theater of War Productions. This is a big, winding exploration about the drama of his body of work meeting the drama of our world. So, a heads up, in the produced version, we're able to offer a taste of some of the experiences Brian and I talk about. Find that, of course, wherever you got this podcast. Okay. Terrific. Um, I'm just going to say, before we start, well, first of all, I'm so glad we're doing this. Um, Me too. I'm so glad. I've been looking forward to it. I feel... Um, I feel about this conversation kind of the way I feel about a lot of things right now that like I feel like my my brain is is not serving me as well as it normally does. <laughs> um so I hope I I I want to do this justice. Um I think it will well, be it will be what it what it's meant to be. Exactly. Well, you know in our model it's um really not about polish. So yeah. maybe we can we can bring a little of our model into you. Yeah, okay. Well, no. <laughs> Be, pre- right. be present together. Be pre- and, no, that's it, and that's make, it. Make mistakes. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. If I for, if I'm if I fail to connect dots that I know I know to connect, then it will just be part of the production. Exactly. Um, okay, Chris. Are you, so we're okay. All right. Good. Let's just let's just dive in. Um, Great. So um, yeah, just I will I will say that one thing on my mind is. Um, is that we're going to be? We may, you know, maybe we may pull some audio from mm-hmm. a theater, from theater of war. In we're going to be talking about um, plays and stories and productions that people haven't heard, and that's always just really tricky. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to, I want, I'm going to, I'm going to try to work um, for that not to be problematic, okay. um, and you know, just know that before. We start, you know, before we, you know, at the top of the show, I'll kind of tell people a lot about what you do and what you've done and kind of details like that. So we don't mm-hmm. have to, we don't have to cover all that ground in the conversation. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just, I just want, because you're also a producer, like, I just want you to know that's one of the things I'm attentive to. No problem. Yeah. And I stand ready to, I yeah. have three passages if you Okay, want great. Them, so. Yeah. Well, what I want to say is like, I am going to ask you. I think I would like for you to, um, well, let's just do it, and I'll just say yeah. all of this in the context of the conversation. Yeah, okay. sure, no all problem. Right. Okay. Um, so, Brian, you have described yourself as a self-proclaimed evangelist for ancient stories and their relevance to our lives today. Um, you've said that in, in, in many different ways in different places, and um, I'm just really curious as we start. That's such an intriguing thing to be an evangelist for. And I wonder, like, how do you how do you trace the earliest roots of that that passion, that faith um, in your life? So the first play I was ever in uh, as a child was Euripides' Medea at my father's community college, where he taught psychology, and um, I remember him sort of signing me up to do this thing. I had no idea what it was. And 
all of a sudden I was backstage belting the lines of Euripides' play, pretending to die at my own mother's hand <laughs> uh, with one of my closest friends. Okay. And I still remember one of the lines. Uh, it was, no, no, the sword is falling. And um, mm. that, it seems like already, even looking back upon it, there was a sort of kernel of, I think that could be said better. You know, maybe mm. there's a different way to say it that's more direct than that. Or maybe there's a way to capture the the poetry and the reality of that statement. Mm. But in any, in any case, um, I guess I caught the bug then. Um, the play touched me at this really deep level. And... Um, I'm gonna, sent, you know what? Yeah, I'm, go I'm going to ask you as you as you mentioned plays, just to just to because you're so good at this, also just to summarize the plot because we all should have read all of these plays, sure, <laughs> if we have humanities yeah. degrees. But I'm really yeah. quite uh, quite humbled by how how many of the references in your work I'm I'm you know I'm not I'm not up on. So just say a little bit about yeah. Euripides, but well, very briefly. No problem. Yeah. Um, so I mean, again, so much of our work and this work that we're doing is 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 about um, making it clear that these stories don't belong to the rarefied few of them who studied right. studied them in university or in some rarefied elite place. Um, they belong to everyone, and and um, that's because they speak to very universal themes. Euripides' Medea is a play about a, um, a a foreigner, a woman who's brought to another land um, by her husband. She gives up everything to do it, including uh, murdering um, her own Mm. um, brother and um, leaving behind um, uh, her her homeland and and then is is betrayed by her husband in this terrible way where he pretty quickly leaves her for a younger woman uh, from a more powerful family. Mm. And having been betrayed and being a foreigner in a foreign land, she feels absolutely powerless and so she um, expresses her rage and her sense of betrayal with the only thing she feels she has any power over, which is the bodies of her own two children, whom she murders. <sighs> and um, of course, she's a very powerful uh, demigod of sorts, uh, some, uh, you know, not just a human. So she's sublimated all those powers in order to be with her husband. And at the end of the place, she flies away in, in the chariot of the sun with the bodies of her two children. Mm. And I played one of the two children and uh, had no idea what it was about at the time. It was just, for me, it was about being backstage with a bunch of semi-professional actors and college students having a great time. Um, which, you know, it's hard to say when you're speaking of such a sort of gruesome plot, but yeah. we had a great time. And, and um, I, I think it was just the beginning of something for me as sort of the kernel of, oh, maybe this is something somehow I could do. Um, I ended up studying uh, ancient Greek in college yeah. and, um, and other classical languages. I wasn't great at it, um, but I worked really hard at it. Yeah. And uh, in my last year of college, I started getting this idea that maybe my place was not behind the desk, uh, writing translations in my uh, sort of closet or, you know, sit, sitting, sitting alone. Um, but maybe I needed to go back to where it all started and um, develop these plays in collaboration with 
other people, including actors and dancers and musicians and lighting designers. And, and out of that was born this idea that for me, translation is, um, is something that's, uh, uh, is not distinct or apart from directing or producing or facilitating discussions. It's all one thing. Hmm. Um, that goes, and, does that go back to that question you asked? Like, couldn't this be said not just better, but more faithfully to the to the poetry with which it was written. Is well, there's, you know, people talk about the poetry as if they knew the poetry, mm -hmm. even, and oftentimes people who talk about the poetry never read it in yeah. its original. So yeah. they'll say things like, well, it's, it's not as noble as the Greeks would have huh. expressed it or, but you know, these, these plays from over 2,500 years ago were direct, you know, efficacious experiences. Um, they weren't high poetry removed from the masses. They were, they were touching people at a very profound level. So I guess when I yeah. asked the question is like, well, you know, could that have been said in a way that didn't feel like a sort of stultified 19th century translation? Well, you know? right. I mean, I would say yeah. in a way that poetry touches people at its best, right? Right. I mean, we know yeah, that, it, well, we know that experience too, as 21st century people. Exactly. As yeah. living language. Yeah. yeah. Not as, um, you know, the reason that so many of the plays also, or, you know, one of the reasons that many of the translations that we encountered in school sound so antiquated or at least so 19th century uh, is because the lexicon that we all studied Greek from in the 20th century and the early 21st century was codified in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. So the idioms that we learned weren't the idioms of ancient Greece. They were the idioms of ancient Greece filtered through that century. Victorian <laughs> translation. Yeah. Right. And so people say, well, you're not being faithful. To mm -hmm. whom should I be faithful? Right. You know, right. The, the incredibly wonderful family that intergenerationally wrote this lexicon. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, should I be faithful to the fact that these are these plays aren't literary artifacts. Mm -hmm. They are blueprints for felt experience. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it seems important to me, too, in, in your life story, um, and you do write about this and speak about this sometimes, um, that also at that young age, when you were in your early 20s, or I guess it, while you were in college even, you, 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 were deep, you fell in love, you were engaged to a woman named Laura who died, and you had this experience at the extremities of human condition and of suffering. Mm -hmm. um, and it feels like that also somehow becomes part of your connection to the to the truth of of the of these stories and the, and what they tell us about ourselves that was a big piece of it for me i mean um you know in some ways uh it feels inappropriate as a young person to be studying antiquity mm -hmm. because you have so little life experience with which to compare it um for me it wasn't until i'd experienced the death of someone i'd loved until I had observed the limits of my own compassion, until I had um, experienced moral distress and shame, and until I had really seen death very, you know, up and close, uh, that these plays that I had some feeling for or attraction to, even as young as age nine with that first experience, that the plays felt like they spoke directly to me or about me. And it was in that experience of losing my girlfriend. I was after college, but you know, it was my early twenties, which mm -hmm. I think is yeah. a lost period on many people. Um, 
you know, I graduated from college thinking uh, I'm going to direct my own translations of ancient Greek plays. Isn't this amazing? And of course, there was no audience for that. And what little audience did exist, I wasn't particularly interested in. <laughs> um, not to say that it's not, it's not a good thing that people care about these plays, but the stakes felt so low. Mm. And, uh, and then I lost my girlfriend and I didn't just lose my girlfriend. I, I was her principal caregiver for five or six months oh, yeah. at the she end of her life. She had cystic fibrosis, which she'd had all of her life. She had she had cystic fibrosis, and she is someone who, at, at, at as a, early as age three, had been able to articulate her sense of her own mortality to her parents. Mm -hmm. And so, this whole question, I met her when she was a student at a writer's workshop where I worked, and you know, who was the teacher, who was the student, who was the shaman, who was the initiate. These roles kept shifting back and forth over the span of our relationship. Mm -hmm. And in the last months of her life, I got the privilege of caring for her through the last five months of her life after she'd had a double lung transplant and after she'd had scores of other um, surgeries uh, because the, the, the transplant didn't really work. Um, you know, I, I got to help her across, across a threshold of life and death. Mm -hmm. I helped her finish her book, um, which was called um, Breathing for a Living. And she dictated the last chapters and the epilogue to me from her deathbed. And being present with her as she died was one of the most joyous experiences of my life. And I don't mean to fetishize death. Um, I just, in that moment, learned from her because of her incredible wisdom and because of her relationship to her own mortality from age three, and she died at age 22, um, I... Uh, I learned from her that death was an opportunity for the making of meaning and connection. Hmm. And when she died, it just, uh, it, it, the thing that actually w hurt the most wasn't her loss. It was the fact that nobody wanted to talk about it. Right. right. And the more I tried to talk about all these things I had observed and experienced, not just in her dying, but in the months leading up to it, the more people seemed to recoil. Although I was in this sort of ecstatic state of really, you know, wanting to talk about it gregariously and joyously because I'd learned so much. And it took me about a hundred performances of theater of war and some of our other projects to realize that at a very core level, the work that I've been doing for the last 12 years has been about creating the conditions where people will talk about it. Mm -hmm. one, of, one of the things you, you wrote about um, you've said about what's happening, the power of these human creations, that is, these stories, um, is that these are not simply entertainment, but a technology that arose from a need for the collective witness of human suffering. And that you can plug these like an external hard drive into the right audience and the ancient plays still work with startling efficiency. I mean, it sounds absurd. Uh, for most of us, our encounters with Greek tragedy are you know, really bad productions uh, with people um, rolling around in sheets, yeah. um, you know, invoking gods that no longer exist in yeah. Victorian sounding translations or some high school English teacher who kind of didactically, you know, instilled in us some very, I think, limited ideas about what these plays were about uh, for all that teacher's best intentions. Um, but 
you know, the central thesis of the stuff that we've been doing over the last 12 years is um, in some ways, uh, education might be an impediment to the direct experience of these plays. Right. Um, that in fact, the prerequisite for understanding antiquity and for engaging with these ancient stories is suffering. And the closer one is in proximity to suffering, whether it's physical, spiritual, moral in nature, or all of the above, uh, the more one has to teach us about what these plays are about. Um, so in the ancient world, in the fifth century BC, we're talking about a century in which the Greeks saw nearly 80 years of war. We're talking about a century in which a plague yeah. kills one, one third of the Athenian population. Um, we're talking about a century in which the birth of medicine was sort of formalized and as a profession, as, as, you know, sort of separate and apart from snake oil sales and, mm. you know, other healing arts. And yet it didn't have that much to offer in terms of allaying the, the inevitable pain that awaits all human beings uh, when they face their immortality and add these all together. And, you know, out of necessity, um, the Greeks developed this form of storytelling that served a very direct purpose that I think we've lost, lost touch with as a society, as a culture. And that purpose was to communalize trauma, uh -huh. to create the conditions where the, the word amphitheater in Greek means the place where we go to see in both directions. Amphi, I see you, you see me, mm. both directions. Theatron, the seeing place. You know, um, amphi in both directions. So um, we go to the amphitheater in the 5th century BC to see each other, to see ourselves, to see ourselves reflected in stories that are actually ancient to us because we're talking about the Trojan War to fifth century Greeks, which is already using the same strategies we're using now of distance and time to create these conditions. And um, to see that we are not the only people to have felt this isolated or this ashamed or this betrayed, um, not just because it's being enacted on stage, but because people around us in this semicircular structure are all sort of validating and acknowledging the truth of what we're watching. And out of that comes this technology that I think I'm not, I, in the early days, I'd say I was an evangelist for ancient Greek literature. Mm -hmm. I've changed my bio because I don't, um, I'm not so interested in proselytizing Greek literature. And I've seen other cultures give enough time and enough necessity. They also find this form and the Greeks didn't invent it, um, uh, of using uh, the act of storytelling and the enactment of story and song as a tool for um, healing and for communalizing grief and loss and trauma. You, you've also moved, um, perhaps just uh, in the course of, of 2020, which... Uh, um, you know, we're one. I'm, I'm I'm trying to think and speak in terms of the post 2020 world now, <laughs> but but what I mean, there are many ways to describe it, it as a juncture and an experience, a, a collective global experience, but certainly trauma and suffering and loss of so many in so many forms um, defined this time and. Mm. Um, and have left a legacy with which we will all be living for the rest of our lifetimes. That's um, right. And also how true we can be to what what this trauma and suffering give us to see. 
I mean, so you've moved a bit into um, plays and performances that aren't ancient Greek tragedies. Mm. Um, but it, but it does strike me, and and, and I know, and I want to kind of, and I want to kind of get into some of those specifically, and sure. and really be in stories. But but first of all, I mean, one thing that does strike me, even as you venture out in terms of the repertoire of theater of war, um, and I think this is worth explaining because it's especially in American culture, you know, we just have this weird equation of old with not progressive, you know, not like like old as as something that has been moved beyond. And but but mm-hmm. you're always working, whether it's an ancient Greek play or it's a poem um, that is a few decades old or um or mm-hmm. the book of Job, <laughs> which mm-hmm. just has thousands yeah. of years on it. You're working with words that have the heft of having been spoken and heard and repeated by so many human beings across generations before you. Mm-hmm. They, they hold this heft of lived human struggle mm-hmm. and courage. And that just transmits itself um, mm-hmm. to the audience um, what was your first production? So you kind of had this brainstorm, it sounds like, it, in college or coming out of college, that you could mm-hmm. bring this kind of drama, um, not, not, not just that you could bring this kind of drama to modern audiences, but that was exactly what was, it was, that it was necessary for healing, whether we knew it or not. What was yeah. the first experiment that you did uh, in that? Yeah. So when I left college, I was, I, the question I was asking I, naively was, how do I make these plays more relevant to audiences? How do I help people see what I s- see in them? Mm-hmm. And so I would dress them up. You know, one one production I directed was like a rave, and we put um, subwoofers under every seat in this in the round, and so that every time the god, the sort of numinous presence of the god was felt, you'd be vibrating literally out of your seats. Um, how can I? How can I bring the presence of these plays into the contemporary world and have people? feel them in this direct efficacious way. And then um, in my mid to late 20s, after Laura died, um, because I'd had this experience where the plays had spoken directly to me um, in this way that was allayed a lot of my fears and concerns and just lifted the burden that I had been carrying uh, and also just electrifyingly felt helped me feel connected with not just people, living people, but people across generations. Um, I started asking a different question. And the question is now, for whom are we telling the story? Mm. For Mm. whom are we telling the story? I mean, following that, whose stories are these? Who has the proprietary right to be talking about them? Mm. Those of us who spent four years in a college talking about them? What gives us the right? What gives us that right? You know, why, why does it, how does that make us special? Maybe the preparation actually might be an impediment to being present uh, with these stories. Um, so the first experiment was um, after Laura died, I, I directed a reading of um, this play Philoctetes uh, by Sophocles in a, a kind of downtown experimental theater called um, uh, The Culture Project. Uh, and they had a sort of a festival plays that were addressing the Iraq war. Um, Laura died on the night of the invasion of Iraq. Mm. And I had protested in the streets of New York while she was dying um, in the weeks leading up. Uh, So I remember listening right after she died, turning on my radio and listening to the sounds of the invasion. 
and feeling like this was all sort of cataclysmically connected in some way, mm. um, in that way that you can't help but connect your own subjective experiences with global events. Um, so here we are, at, you know, at this um, downtown theater doing a reading of this ancient play by Sophocles um, about a chronically ill individual who is abandoned on an island for nine years on account of his chronic illness, which he contracts on the way to the Trojan War, um, abandoned by his own men and left for dead. And the play's about what happens when the Greeks come back to get him because they've learned from an oracle they won't win the war without him and his invincible weapon. Hmm. And in fact, he's disabled by his affliction, the snake bite. And so in many ways, the play is about what we lose when we marginalize the afflicted or the disabled. And um, it's also about how can a person who feels betrayed at that level accept help from the very people and the very system that betrayed him. Mm. Is that that's the, o- the name of, is this Ajax? Is it's that, Philoctetes. Oh, Philoctetes, okay. Philoctetes. Right. Um, people say it all kinds of ways, Philoctetes. The yeah. British say Philoctetes. I tell people just say Phil because it doesn't really matter. <laughs> okay. You know? Okay. Um, so, so here's this play about Phil. And yeah. Phil's abandoned on an island. We do it in this, and it's about this chronic patient. And I'm clearly chronically ill patient, and I'm clearly in translating it, working through my own relationship. It's also with Laura. It's also about a play about um, a young man who's sent in by his commanding officer, Odysseus, who's never been to war. His name means new to war, Neoptolemus. And his first orders he's given by his commanding officer are to deceive this wounded man. Hmm. And once his defenses are down, steal this invincible weapon that he wields and use it against him to bring him to Troy. And it's about, at its core, you know, what it means to be a caregiver and how we are, I think none of us are pure necessarily in our intentions as caregivers, we all have agendas. We all have our own objectives that we're serving. There's no such thing in my opinion of sort of selfless Mm -hmm. caregiving. And the complexity of that is borne out in this relationship because when he witnesses this scene of abject suffering at the center of the play where Philoctetes is visited by this unimaginable pain that just overtakes him, um, this young man, Neoptolemus, has to make a decision. Do I follow my moral compass uh, and perhaps risk my career and even my life? Or do I do something that cuts against the grain of what I think is right, what I've been raised to believe is right? Um, so here's this play. Uh, it's 2005, I think, when this reading happens. And a physician um, comes to the reading and he says um, afterwards, you know, I think um, I think this would really speak to doctors and patients in hospitals. Hmm. And I just spent a couple of years in and out of hospitals. In fact, in the lead up to translating the play, I hadn't just lost Laura, but my own father had a kidney transplant. And I worked on the translation of the choruses of this play while he was recovering in Richmond, Virginia, hmm. uh, from getting this new kidney. And so I'd spent a good part of my mid-20s in hospitals. And it seemed very pointed that I was being sort of given this opportunity to return. Right. Um, so we went, we, the first, I, I cast about looking for someone who might invite a, a reading of an ancient Greek play in their classroom in a sort of medical school setting. And um, with a couple of phone calls and the help of Laura's father, who was also a doctor, um, 
I was invited to present Philactides at um, Wild Cornell Medical School and on the Upper East Side. And that was where the first real revelation took place in terms of, you know, this question, moving from how to for whom and, and other sets of questions we now ask. And so we, we went in, we performed uh, scenes from the play. Um, we did, went a couple times um, with various actors. Um, I, one of the earliest performances which was um, David Strathairn as Philoctetes and yeah. uh, the actor Jesse Eisenberg, fresh out of the squid and the whale, playing this young man, Neoptolemus. Um, and I thought I knew what the play was about. I thought I translated it for very personal reasons. I thought I had this central thesis about what it said to the world and what it could, you know, signify. And then we scheduled a discussion after the reading and, um, and, and it was like a veil was pulled back hmm. when people who'd never heard of the play, it's an obscure play. I mean, not even most people who've studied. I'm not the only one. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're not alone. You're certainly not alone. Yeah. It's a weird, obscure play. It sort of defies people's expectations of what a Greek tragedy is. It's one that never gets produced. It got quite a bit of action around the AIDS epidemic. I mean, you know, there were productions, some um, around the country uh, became sort of AIDS narrative. Right. Um, yeah. Um, and there's some famous, you know, like uh, productions that that explored that. Um, but other than that, really, people didn't know about it. So an audience that had never heard about this play, didn't know Sophocles from anybody, um, had had to pass through sort of rigorous, mostly science-based curriculum to get to where they were, whether they were doctors or, or, or students, uh, all of a sudden demonstrated within minutes of opening their mouths that they knew more about the play than I did. Um, they made connections, they made, they, they tied themes, they spoke to experiences that were lived experiences of um, uh, shame and anguish. But also um, a lot of the medical students raised their hands and said, you know, I feel like this young person who's sort of thrust into this ethically complex uh, system and I don't know if I should trust my commanding officers. And I don't know that what I'm at being asked to do in terms of burying my own emotions and practicing a kind of clinical detachment that I'm being sort of acculturated to behave this way isn't a betrayal at, as core of my own, you know, values and, and also who I am. And this whole question, this whole conversation emerged without my saying very much of anything. And it became clear to me that um, the audience knew more than I did. And that is, that's been the central value of our work. That the, the audience was skin in the game, the audience was something at stake, has more to teach us than we to teach them. What was that? There's something one of your professors said to you. Um, I, I mean, I want to say I've also watched, I've, I've, I've participated in, because it feels a little bit more intimate than watching, um, several of the performances um, on Zoom uh, through the pandemic and... Uh, Yes, there's even even through the technology, through the filter of the technology, it's a communal experience, and that finds expression um, that is really powerful. And I'm just thinking, as you're saying this, you, there's somewhere you write about your professor. Was it Dr. Kuhlman? That's right. The That's secret right. of reading is to close <laughs> the book. And I don't yes. know that I would have understood that. I understand that better having watched yeah. these performances. Can you say something yeah. about that? Because yeah. did, did that form how you ended up creating these experiences? Yeah. Yeah. So I had this incredibly 
this privilege of all privileges when I was at Kenyon College studying classics to study under this German polymath, Holocaust survivor, religion professor, but he actually taught in six different departments um, and knew over 20 languages. Um, and I, I was one of his last students and I got to study Greek, Latin and Hebrew and a little Aramaic and some German and learned to read really slowly at his house about two miles from campus where I'd go four or five days a week uh, extracurricularly. And it really formed the basis of, of everything I'm doing because of two things. One, um, every single time I went and we studied some arcane etymology or some preposition that we were chasing across languages and translations, um, we would stop the lesson and look at whatever we were reading. And then it would be required of me to connect it with something that I'd read in the New York times that day. <laughs> um, always weaving this exegetical classical work together with the day's events and making these connections. And the other was this thing that he said to me, which was, um, you know, he's, he had this very thick German accent and he said, um, you know, he'd look at me through these Coke bottle glasses and extremely intimidating way of teaching. And he would say, what is the secret to reading Dr. Brian? <laughs> and he called me Dr. Brian, you know, because you will be a philologist, which is another way of saying a cla classical philologist. Just, yeah. you know, and, um, you know, uh, what is the secret to reading? And then I would sort of wait for him to answer his own question. And he said, to close the book. And then he goes, in the olden days, we would uh, <laughs> close the book and have a cigarette. And while smoking, we would think, now what have I just read? Mm -mm. But you don't smoke, do you, Dr. <laughs> Brian? <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, but in, in that, with this sort of twinkle in his eye, mm -hmm. was this, you know, we can do all this reading. We can, we can spend our whole lives with our heads buried in books. But if we don't stop and close the book and ask the question, now what have I just read? Well, we're missing out mm -hmm. on where the action really is. And I would say extending that beyond the classroom or the sort of uh, the, the living room where I studied under this incredible scholar, that the really exciting part of the work I get to do is I get to ask that question of people mm -hmm. in the largest venues possible and around questions where the stakes are as high as life and death. In other words, how people answer that question may determine whether people in the audience live or die or how they live and die. Mm -hmm. Which if you told me when I was a student at Kenyon College that you know, reading a Greek play or an ancient text could result in you know, saving someone's life or someone talking to their wife for the first time or averting suicide or averting an act of violence or checking themselves into a 28-day treatment program, then I'd say that's ridiculous, it's hyperbole, it's absurd, it's self-aggrandizing. <sighs> But in fact, that's what we stumbled across, you know, a couple steps beyond that hospital performance. Um, we performed for our first military audience. Yeah. And so, I mean, I just want to like you've you have been to you've you've so you've done this. You've taken this theater or this drama, this these stories to military bases and hospice and prisons and Guantanamo Bay, the people who work at Guantanamo Bay. 
and um, you've created experiences um, in a, in the very fraught political environment of 2020 in like a Knox County, Ohio. <laughs> you've gone to Ferguson, Missouri, mm-hmm. Antigone in Ferguson, the Book of mm-hmm. Job in Knox County. Um, so you've actually uh, followed the tradition of these not as and as you say like we to the extent that a lot of us in the modern west were introduced to this literature even though we've been told that it is our founding it is our literature right we we read it and mm-hmm. but it was it was it was meant to be performed and experienced right and so whenever you do this you also i would say like having now having this image of you and your professor you <laughs> you help you direct the play gets performed and then the book is closed, and and everyone um, ponders together. That's right, and and there are a number of other, you know, considerations that are at the center of the model. Because when I left college and I started casting about for audiences and trying to figure out, well, how could I do this in a way that would reach more people and people would be more deeply engaged by it. Um, it it took me a while to figure out that the places where culture is performed or created and consumed carry within them hierarchies, pernicious, insidious structures of oppression that are inherent to how they operate as institutions. And so it was just such a gift to find that audience outside of the theater and to find it in homeless shelters. I mean, there is no richer conversation about questions of life and death than than with people who are unhoused. Mm -hmm. Um, That is where it's at. There was one day a couple years ago where we did a performance at a homeless shelter in the morning in the Bronx and a performance at Lincoln Center in the evening. (laughs) And I just yearned at the deepest level, to somehow be able to connect the people at Lincoln Center with the insights of what I'd heard in the homeless shelter, which exceeded anything we ever heard at a place like Lincoln Center. And, mm-hmm. um, now with Zoom, we can. But in the early days, um, it was really challenging because we went into all these extremely marginalized spaces or these institutional spaces like military bases or hospitals or prisons where no one could really come with us. And for a long time, the work was about helping people in professional communities who, for whatever series of reasons, practice a kind of clinical detachment from questions of life and death, reconnect with their spiritual and sort of emotional response to the things they do every day. And I would like to think that that's also what the Greeks were trying to do. They knew in the fifth century BC that it was not adaptive to start crying in the middle of a battle. Right. Um, uh, You know, the surgeon, you definitely don't want the surgeon, you know, with a tremor in his hand as he's cutting open your chest or she's operating on you. Um, You know, but there has to be a place and there has to be a time for people to feel what it would be appropriate to feel and to express it collectively. Yeah, yeah and you know, um, you, I, I think when I first heard about your project years ago, I think like, you know, the theater of war 
<laughs> it's kind of a startling title. It right? is. It is. And now you and you call it, you lead it, and founded it as a public health project um, for all yeah. the reasons we're we're talking about here. Um, and you did, as you say, you kind of it you you wandered into this initially um, presenting these readings of ancient Greek war plays. A lot of them were had war themes for military and civilian audiences and. And I have to say, and but you've kept that you've kept that title. Mm. And one of the things I heard you say, and and so here we are in this in this new moment. I like that you're you're one of the few people I know who thinks about Kronos and Kairos. Like, I do. Right. of course, yes. this is Greek language. Like, there are different two different forms of time. You have a good definition. You you talk yeah. about you you give that definition. You're the you're the expert. Uh, but, but I mean, we're in a like we're in a Kairos time. So what yes. do, what do I mean when I say that? You explain that to other people. So, so the, you know, to simplify, and I'm I'm really not a scholar. I'm, I'm more uh, you, a, a popularizer in the best sense. You can see inside those Greek yeah. words, right? Which yeah. I learned to do just a little bit in yeah. in, uh, in 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 divinity school, and it's just so thrilling. That's, that's all. That's all one needs. Yeah. I was, yeah. um, and and so you know, the Greeks had a, a very complex conception of time, but um, just like they had multiple words for love um, that, um, and multiple words for various seats of emotion and places of cognition within the body, um, they had multiple words for time. And, and two of the words were chronos, which is sort of chronological time or the, the great sort of measurable expanse of time. Yeah. Um, and kairos, uh, and kairos in Greek, uh, you know, several definitions, but it, for me, it's um, a moment that stands outside of time. It's mm -hmm. like it's an atemporal space uh, that is timeless. Um, and in the Kairos, uh, th that that's the time. You know, in the in the in New Testament, the Kairos is the time is nigh. Right, the time, yeah. the time. It's like an in-breaking. It, it's and it's yeah. It's like a moment of opportunity that is distinct, right? That it is that transcends the kind of flow and the increments of the passage of time chronologically. And I think I think you're right. The the pandemic is a kairos. It's a it's an it's an op, in, in the sense that it's an opportunity. I would never fetishize the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, I wish it weren't here, but it is. And so rather than sort of lamenting that we can't do the things we used to do or how we do them, um, you know, the, the way we used to do them, um, you know, let's make meaning out of this. Let's make connection. Let's, let's find a way forward and let's innovate and let's shift the paradigm or let's reconnect with things we lost touch with, um, you know, and, and, um, and not everyone is in the position to do that. Um, that's, that's a privilege. Um, yeah, and, there, and, and, and I, the trauma of our time is all the wreckage of the... But, but, e but even that's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the pandemic has made visible to many people who were sort of willfully blind, yeah. um, much like Oedipus in one of our other projects, um, has made visible things that I hope we won't be able to unsee. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's the kind of telos, the sort mm -hmm. of um, the, the, the possibility, the sort of end possibility of what this might accomplish. And so for us... Um, Yes, we started with military audiences, and that led, led us to uh, all kinds of other spaces people really couldn't come into. But with the pandemic, we had to find a way forward, and, and we did that through, through technology of Zoom. And by connecting that external hard drive of 
ancient technology of, of that ancient technology of uh, theater, but also Athenian theater um, with the most contemporary and, you know, unfolding technologies of Zoom, yeah. um, all of a sudden this digital amphitheater emerged. Um, and, um, and I, you know, to be clear, we're, we're, we're thinking about a name change. Um, well, because because well, it's we've moved beyond the theater of war. You have, well, uh, you have, and, except here's what I wanted to say <laughs> that just really struck me as I was getting ready to talk to you. Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, I do, you know, when I think about the Kairos, like I think, I, 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 so, you know, we've so, it's become such a common uses, usage of the word moment, right? We're in this right. moment. And to me, like the difference between a chronological moment and a Kairos moment is that like this, the, uh, it can last an instant and it can last a century. And I feel like this moment we've entered is is really the rest of our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be rippling through the rest of our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. So one thing that really strikes me because you've done a lot in hospitals and with what we have come to call frontline workers, right? Mm-hmm. Like what strikes me is when I look at, you know, it, it, the list of your of all your work that you do, um, which are these crisis trauma points in human societies that are at once extreme and ordinary, mm-hmm. you know, um, domestic violence and and sexual violence and, and sex, substance abuse and incarceration and natural disaster and you know, and excesses in our police and justice systems. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those, we tend at trauma points to to invoke language of war, right? <laughs> the yeah. war on drugs. Yes, um, yes, yes. We turn our our healthcare. You know, we we treat we treat natural disasters also as assault right we 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 yes. We, yes. we do resort somehow naturally to this language of war yeah to this to this magnitude of threat whatever the threat is yes and even and i've i've been troubled in these yeah. you know in the pandemic about how we use what is essentially military language like mm-hmm. frontline workers to talk about caregivers yeah um and yeah. you know but so so there's yes. a, so there's this right so there's a sense yes. in which the reality of how we behave the words we use the and also the ways our nervous systems are activated right because that's mm-hmm. also what that this use of language is an expression of mm-hmm. um, it makes sense of this as a project of theater of war no, it's I mean, like there about are, understanding ourselves it, there are so many theaters of war mm-hmm. um you know, the, the the technical term theater of war is referring to the theater of operations where war is, you know, prosecuted. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and they currently call that the area of operations in our American military, AOR, but they also say the theater of war. So it's something that was common usage still to this day. Um, but there are so many theaters of war. And by theater, I mean the seeing place of war, the, 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 the bearing witness the to the truth witness. of witness. Right. And, and I'll go, you know, I, there's, this is really, I'm glad you have an hour and a half and a very long program compared to others. Cause this is, you know, I, I am more allergic to martial metaphors than you might imagine. Um, I thought with Susan Sontag's essay, you know, uh, illness and metaphor, we, um, and her sort of, uh, unpacking the problem of using, uh, military and martial metaphors to talk about, um, Cancer, for instance, or mm-hmm. HIV. But we do. 
but we do. And, and, and I don't want to say that I, I think it's helpful for some people to mm -hmm. think of it that way, just like sports metaphors are helpful. To, I wouldn't begrudge people their sports metaphors. Yeah. And, and there's probably some depth to sports metaphors um, that shouldn't be, you know, looked down at. Um, but there's a danger in, in becoming so highly militarized um, th that we, in our language, and um, that we can't see beyond it. Um, and and it invades, and there's another military word, it, yeah, it, yeah. it, it imbues itself into everything it touches. The flip side is um, the U.S. military was the laboratory out of which the work we're doing was born. And whether you personally like the military or not, it is this grand social experiment where people of all walks of life are brought together and thrust into these life and death situations together. And which for many years, for centuries, um, you know, George Washington staged play, a play for his troops at Valley Forge. I mean, hmm. has been using storytelling and other tools as um, sort of to engage soldiers and Marines and other sailors in, in sort of social programs to address the kinds of issues you were listing that are on our website. So it was the most incredible graduate school for what, what we're doing now, which now is for huge swaths of the popula global population. Yeah. But be able to work on these questions with the U.S. military. Um, and then the last piece is that um, there's this cohort of veterans who've returned from Iraq and Afghanistan who, um, you know, uh, are, are, by virtue of their very makeup and how, you know, how they operate in the world are, are kind of demanding that we talk about it. And f in a way that no previous generation, except for the Vietnam generation that had been obviously ignored. Yeah. Um, and it had talked about it and in these terms. And so they had this capacity to sort of open the gates in red state America and in places that are, you know, think of themselves as deeply conservative and maybe averse to psychology or the sort of talk-based therapy. All of a sudden there's this opportunity by way of the military to have that conversation in places where that conversation hasn't happened on a, on a sort of wholesale level. And uh, that's been also part of the, the, the utility of engaging with martial metaphors and the military and um, earning that trust and then using that trust to engage with other communities. But, you um, know, something else that I feel, because you, you take this on in a deep way, um, you're also working with, like, here's something you, you, I can't remember if you said this or you wrote this, but you were talking about medical professionals, frontline workers, our mm -hmm. 21st century frontline workers, and how important it was to move past facile gratitude. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you, because what you're, what these plays are addressing and why this is a public health project yeah. is, 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 you know, not just exhaustion at every level um, that is physical and emotional and spiritual, but moral distress. That's right. And this language that comes out from military experience of trauma, like moral injury. Yeah. Um, and and again, I would say that moral injury, which is which is the internal, you might describe this better than I do, but the internal cost 
of the impossible situations and the extreme situations human beings are put into. And I would say this applies to doctors and police officers as well as soldiers, right? Or so that's that's what you, these this these stories and this work help people grapple with. And we yes. are impoverished. And I think this this is a lesson of of pandemic and the post-pandemic world is that we don't have communal, that we must develop a communal capacity to, to mourn and to hold loss and yeah. to and to, and to work, to be, be to be honest about trauma, um, mm. and to work with it. Yeah, I mean the deferment of grief is a form of moral injury or yes. moral distress, and it's you know it was one of the principal injuries of the Vietnam War that people would die up front and then they their funeral would happen in the in the rear echelon, and the very people who would be administering to their funeral weren't the people who had lost or were grieving the person who died, and that you know these ancient plays, um, you know, so I should have said from the very beginning, and you might have, and you, you might in your introductory materials, you know, full disclosure, I'm the son of two psychologists, yeah. And so I'm extremely allergic, not just to martial metaphors, but to the jargon of the psychoanalytic model. Yeah. And that's also what helped me because, you know, I, I didn't want to go to therapy. I, the only thing that really ever appealed to me was a kind of oracular <laughs> uh, model of, you know, um, you know, sort of the idea that that. I could speak with someone who might have more insight into the future than I, and then contemplate um, how I might change my behavior based on that information. But the, the, for me, the, um, it can't feel like medicine for, for doctors or nurses or respiratory therapists to begin talking about what they're experiencing during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it can't, just like the two, son of two psychologists, it can't feel like the psychoanalytic model. It, for the most talk averse population, maybe there is, which are soldiers and uh, veterans, um, you know, we're asking them to go into a clinical setting and often talk to someone that they don't know. Right. One on one. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of veterans and they said, I know I would talk about my experience with civilians, but it just takes so much goddamn energy. Right. And I would say that um, what the plays do is um, they juice the room with the energy that's required to talk about it. Hmm. And I think but, that's true of all kinds of oh, yeah, dynamics you know. that you've gotten into as that are the dynamics and the tensions and, and the people in our time in our world who are, who are being drained by needing to explain, right? It takes energy. It people takes- People of color, right? Like it needs right, right. to Why should I have to, narrate? to educate. Um, yeah. yeah, it's not my job to narrate my mm-hmm. trauma to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's do a- Let's mediate this discussion with an ancient story. It's obviously not written about you. It's not, no one had you in mind. So it's not accusing anyone in the room of anything. Um, it's not a documentary piece. Let's just use that as a tool for reflecting upon what do we see of ourselves in this ancient story? And if the story is about, for instance, as most of the Greek plays are, a young person <laughs> who's just matriculating into sort of adult life, thrust into an ethically impossible situation for which there are no right answers and by which he'll be haunted or she'll be haunted for the rest of their lives, no matter what they decide to do. You know, um, the, well, that's moral injury, right? Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in um, or moral distress, um, in uh, one of the plays we perform, 
um, the women of Trachis, uh, Hercules or Heracles asking his son Hillis to euthanize him, to kill him because he's been poisoned and he knows he's gonna die and he wants to die a certain way. And Hillis says to his father, and this is one of the plays we perform for frontline, as we call them, uh, medical yeah. professionals. Um, he says to his father, uh, what are you asking me to do, father? Be your murderer and stained with the pollution of your blood and hounded by furies forever? And uh, Her Hercules says back to his son, I'm asking you to be my doctor, my iater in Greek. Heal my body, cure my affliction. Um, then a few minutes later, uh, Hylas says to uh, Hercules, uh, if I am loyal to you, then I am disloyal to myself and my sense for what is right. Is this the lesson I am to learn? To me, almost every play brings us to this place of um, moral, ethical complexity where, um, and, and it's as if the Greeks were saying to young people, reflected through characters like Antigone and Orestes and Electra and Hylas and Neoptolemus, and the list goes on and on. This is what characterizes adult life being thrust into situations for which there aren't right answers and by which you'll be haunted no matter what you decide to do. Um, and it's not simply people who've experienced the extremities of life and death professionally that get the privilege of having that experience. It's every human being um, at some point along the line. And then most universally, it seems when people have that experience and they haven't been prepared for it and they have no point of reference, well, then it seemingly... Uh, plays out in all of our lives that all of a sudden we feel we're the only people who've ever felt this alone or this isolated yeah. or this much shame. Right. And, and so, <laughs> and so you see the utility of the it's amphitheater our inside again. our human condition. It is the human condition. <laughs> all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it makes sense. Well, why mm. would the Greeks gather seventeen thousand people and seat them in an amphitheater and show them day after day, you know, four plays a day about people uh, learning too late? And in the process of learning too late, even though they had noble and somewhat good intentions, uh, destroying themselves and their families for generations to come. What was the purpose of that? You know, was it to send them home to wallow in their misery or the futility of their existence or the lack of agency? But I think what we've been missing for thousands of years and what makes these plays work when you plug them into the right audience, which is an audience that's ready to receive them, yeah. is, that, um, is that they show us that you know, we're not alone. And, and, you know, you can say you're not alone. That's, you know, you can see, put it on a billboard. You can, you can, it's a aphoristic thing. People, you know, pithy thing. Yeah. But when people make that discovery, oh, I'm not the only person who's felt this way in my community. Yeah. I can tell just by the way people are breathing around me that, that I'm not the only person who's felt this way. I'm not the only person who's felt this way across the country or the world. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not the only person who's ever felt this way across time. Yeah. And that's where, like, if we had a public health message, that would be it, you know. Mm. Um, these, these plays aren't necessarily didactic. I mean, I, we've done the book of Job just to shift to another ancient text yeah. scores of times. I don't think anyone can say with definity, you know, anything definitive about the sort of message of the book of Job. That's what makes it so helpful to our model. Our model is actually based on the infinite possibility of interpretation in a room, um, we don't have to agree each other politically, but we're all entitled to an interpretation. And by virtue of that, we can listen to each other's interpretations and be open to them in ways that we're not open to each other otherwise. Um, and that's also, I think, baked into this ancient 
this ancient model of storytelling that I think in many ways capitalism and the commodification of the telling of stories and to your point, the sort of lack of places where people can actually have this communal experience yeah. um, that, we've, that we no longer go to stories, you know, uh, in search of that experience anymore. Yeah, there's there's some, well, I, you know, I want, I don't even know if this is, if this is an appropriate thing to do, but I, I just, before we move on, I, you know, there's, um, you, you do have this wonderful book, which I'm going to recommend, The Theater of War, What Ancient Greek Tragedies Can Teach Us Today. And I, I read, um, and I did ask you to bring some passages. So if you, if you just ever, while we're speaking, feel like, if you ever, while we're speaking, feel like something fits you know feel yeah. free to to inject that i you know and i don't know if this is what was meant when this passage was written but this is from prometheus and you it's a, prometheus saying i saved men from total annihilation from almost certain death and now i am to endure these terrible tortures painful to feel almost worse to observe I treated men with compassion, but was not thought worthy enough to receive it in return. Instead, I will be displayed for all to see, so ruth- so ruthlessly abused that even Zeus averts his eyes. Mm. And when I read that again, I thought of our quote-unquote frontline workers, our mm. essential workers, who who and and even if they are working in warehouses, you know, to ship passage packages because. That's right. Because people have to stay home, mm-hmm. um, engaged in care, and and who we, you know, um, at least with our words, put up on pedestals to talk about as heroes. Yeah. Um, and yet, there's incredible moral distress, and in yeah. fact, moral injury in yeah. in in the disconnect between our words and how we actually structure our society and what we celebrate and then actually how people are suffering from. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about several things while you're saying that, but uh-huh. you know, to me, the, um, the, what the Greeks knew and what these other ancient authors I think tapped into is something we're only now finding words to articulate again, which is that betrayal is the wound that cuts the deepest. Mm. It's, it's, um, you can call it whatever you want, moral distress, moral injury, but really it's betrayal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, feeling abandoned or betrayed, um, or betraying oneself, um, and uh, oneself is you know one sense of what's right. And um, so, when I said earlier, or I say in our performances that we're inviting civilians who are not frontline medical professionals yeah. to come into the space and then bear witness, but also to engage in conversation with frontline medical professionals, so that we can move beyond facile expressions of hero worship and applause, it's not to denigrate the impulse of applause or calling people. I understand, you know, I had a, I had an EMT save a friend's life from COVID just two weeks ago. And I, I couldn't, I was very hard not to call him a hero right. uh, in the moment. Yeah, he was my hero uh, of mythological proportions. And he's also someone I met through one of our performances. So it made even more, and he performed in one of them too. So it's after we met him. So it, it was all the more pointed, but, but simultaneously, um, you know, calling someone a hero who has experienced that moral ambiguity that we were talking about a few minutes ago, where 
if I'm loyal to myself, then I'm disloyal to, if I'm loyal to you, then I'm disloyal to my sense of what is right. You know, that these jobs ask people to do things that feel like betrayals over and over and over again. And COVID has accelerated that to this, you know, I mean, we had respiratory therapists in some of our early performances during the mm -hmm. pandemic who were saying, I have 20 patients on respirators in the public hospital in the Bronx and there's only me and I'm left with the guilt of not being able to attend to them all. Right. But if, you know, that's an impossible situation. Yeah. Um, so you call that person a hero when they're wrestling with their own sense of betraying their own standards of care and being betrayed by the system that put them in that position. And it actually hurt them. Just like you call a, a war veteran a hero, yeah. you could hurt that person who's struggling right. with moral injury of having you know, inadvertently and unintentionally killed a child. Um, and so what is the job of the, the civilian or the citizen in this exchange? And that's one of the questions we've been asking for over a decade. And in the early days, I thought it was just to bear witness. You know, people could just listen to these stories mm. and bear witness and be present and their presence would be enough. But then it became clear uh, very early on that in fact, the, the, the whole idea of theater of war productions model is about risk. The actors take a risk. The panelists who respond, uh, you know, usually from their guts take a risk of being vulnerable. And then the audience takes the risk of, you know, interpreting the play and relating the play to their own experiences in real time without any preparation. Um, you know, that's the risk proposition. You know, when, when, when people um, uh, get up and they decide to narrate their own moral distress, um, the first time it was, uh, I remember it happening in this way, there was a, a, a Iraq war veteran who, um, in a performance at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, talked about the moral distress he carried on his shoulders after ordering a missile strike on a house and having faulty intelligence and killing a family, including two children that were the same age as his children and coming back from the war and not being able to sleep um, and eventually having to seek inpatient treatment over and over again because of that moral distress and that moral injury. Um, you know, in, he, he related the story and then a hand shot up in the audience in the discussion. I said this, you know, I asked a question of the audience. The audience fired back and this man shot up his hand and said, I don't know what I'm gonna say. And that's usually a really good sign in our model that something's going to happen hmm. um, uh, that's good or productive. Mm -hmm. But I feel compelled to speak. I'm a, um, I'm a family physician. I live in this community. I don't know anyone in the military. And having heard you say that, sir, I feel I don't deserve to have been in the room to have heard that. Hmm. And the, um, the, the Army veteran looked up to the back of this cavernous 800 seat theater and said to the doctor, thank you for saying that, sir. I too feel I don't deserve to be here. And in that humility, something started to happen in the discussion that I hadn't noticed before when we were just focusing on how do we create the conditions for people to narrate or express their trauma where they don't feel on the spot and they're interpreting a story. Later, as things evolved, people started doing things that really blew my mind. Like a doctor stood up at a performance and she said, in response to what veterans were saying, uh, she, she essentially acknowledged her own male, malpractice in front of a group of people and said, I intentionally didn't treat veterans because for fear of aiding the war effort, 
Um, and I cause suffering and she starts to bawl and cry in front of the audience says, I promise I'll never do that again. Mm-hmm. Well, afterwards, the veterans swarmed around her and I heard one of them say, thank you so much. That was so much better than thank you for your service. <laughs> and then it dawned on me mm-hmm. that um, mm-hmm. what the job of this, the person who hasn't faced the stakes of life and death, who's listening to these stories to do, is actually not to just observe and certainly not to consume it. And it was one of the reasons our work is, is free. Um, but it, it's to, um, it's to, and it's not just to bear witness, but it's actually to take the risk of acknowledging our own moral distress to meet people right. in the trenches and say, you know, actually I did something that's so shameful that I'm only saying it now in public for the first time because of your courage and what you've just said. And I want you to know that I can't understand your, the material circumstances of what happened to you in the war, but I do understand your sense of betrayal or isolation or remorse, because I too have faced and done these things. You know, I was present, um, I've been present at a few of the performances, readings, um, and, I, and I'm actually not sure, but you probably will know if this was <laughs> those Winter Sundays or the drum mm-hmm. major instinct. So the, those Winter Sundays was actually, I think that's the oh, first time you've done a short, it was a poem. 45 seconds. <laughs> 40, but 45 it was read, seconds. Robert Hayden, but it's read by different people, which was yeah. extraordinary. Um, yeah. Starting with Bill Murray mm-hmm. and then... Um, Moses Ingram. Moses Ingram. Oh, and then President Biden. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but really being read by all of us. And, yeah. uh, and, um, so I, and then you also did something that I found extraordinary with a sermon that Martin Luther King Jr. preached in 1968 yeah. at the Ebenezer Baptist Church. Yeah. Um, and part of your your acting company was also some members of Congress who joined. Yeah. Um, and, um, and it was, I'm just going to read, and I, you probably wrote this, but uh, the, the, you know, that to just to summarize that in this sermon, Dr. King laid out a challenge to his congregation and also the world to harness an inborn human drive, the desire to be out front, a desire to lead the parade, a desire to be first and use that instinct to promote justice and righteousness and peace by channeling it into acts of service and love. Mm. Anyway, in one of those, and you know what, it could have been the book of Job and Knox County, there was somebody, there was a man present um, who had been in prison for 20 years. I mean, actually, yeah. you have a lot of people participate who are formerly incarcerated. Um, yeah. And what I watched happen with everybody, I mean, he spoke from the depths of his experience, which was so f- extreme and horrific. And I I watched other people people as you say it was it was different from merely i mean it was bearing witness but also really taking in not as a compliment to him but mm-hmm. almost you heard them speak out loud this moment of realization and gratitude of what he had just taught them yes that's and right and honoring him uh as First of all, for what he'd what he'd what he'd survived, yep. but come out of as with with so much to enrich others with. Yeah, um, yeah. So the, the the individual you mentioned, um, mm-hmm. I, I don't remember which performance, and that's actually instructive because for those listening, you know, we have twenty five plus pro- projects, but really they're all one project. Yeah. 
And the objective of the project is thing we've been talking about all this time, which is um, to create this communalization, you know, where, yeah. um, and this happened early, like, you know, where veterans talking talk, about the human things. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden Stemma says, well, I was kidnapped or I experienced this or I, I experienced sexual assault. And I don't yeah. understand the material circumstances of what happened to you, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, it's really adaptive. I think, and understandable people say, well, no one can understand what I experienced except the people who were in the same place at the same time when it mm-hmm. happened. Well, that's true on a certain level. Um, but on a deeper level, we can understand and we can imagine by virtue of our own experiences, by way of these ancient stories and poetry. And um, even just that language of seeing, right? Seeing. There's something that happens and it happens, it can happen on Zoom. Is really seeing someone. I mean, it, 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 that, that, that's been the miracle of Zoom. Yeah. Turns out people talk about Zoom fatigue. I think any fatigue you have with Zoom is fatigue with your own, you know, how boring you are as an individual. Like I think, or your family, like the, 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 the potential for well, connecting. I don't I, know. I, that's harsh. But, you know, you yeah, said I, in one of these, you said, you said when we bear witness, when what we're doing on Zoom is bearing witness. You you said in one of the, it's yeah. sacred and you said yeah. you said there is Zoom fatigue and I'm going to attest to that. <laughs> yeah, sure, I've been there. No, no, I'm. But I, we're, I, I know, yeah, but you said yeah, we're yeah. never fatigued when we're doing something sacred. That's right. And spiritual on Zoom that that's never right. that never might have happened if it, it wouldn't. For it Zoom. wouldn't have happened. I mean, we have people talking about police violence in Ferguson, and two seconds later, someone from Poland is saying, "Well, I'm LGBTQ and I could be killed by the state for that." And all of a sudden, this connection happens unmediated mm-hmm. by governments or advertisers or corporations yeah. or institutions where without anything stopping it from happening across borders and boundaries with people in authoritarian states who are tuning in to Zoom and participating. Um, yeah. So uh, Zoom has been, I guess to say I'm an evangelist, not for a corporate communications tool that we've repurposed in this way, but I'm an evangelist for like just the, the, the how the pandemic has forced us to find ways to connect, mm. new ways to connect. And that I was such a purist about the theater before this happened. Mm. I'd say, you know, it's all about us breathing together and being in the same space and silence. And while I don't mean to in any way put those things down, I am so excited yeah. about the potential of this digital amphitheater to shine a very bright light into some, some extremely dark places that we've never been able to take people in the past. Yeah. And and then to lift up the voices and the perspectives of people who have lived lives of mythological proportions, but who have no education necessarily to speak of, who have something vital to teach us, not about these stories. And this isn't a, this isn't a lifelong learning exercise about what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And so the person who spoke that you referenced is, actually works for our company. His name is Dominic DuPont. And mm-hmm. I met Dominic um, when we did a performance at Rikers Island. And he came with us uh, as the assistant of one of the actors, um, his uncle, Michael K. Williams. And he had just come out of prison after tw- close to 21 years inside. And he got clemency from Governor Cuomo. And watching Dominic engage with the inmates and with us and with the staff of the prison and his uh, perception and his facility of working within that hierarchy so almost seamlessly that was born out of 21 years of necessity. Uh, 
led me to believe this might be the most enlightened bodhisattva of a human I'd ever encountered. Yeah. And so we hired him immediately. And, um, and, and yet his perspective is not rare. As you know, we work with a lot of people who've experienced incarceration and um, yeah. it moves the room. You know, I'm looking for, um, can, uh, what, you know, what, what is it, um, when we do a performance, uh, you know, we know that things are going well when the person raises their hand and speaks who would be least empowered in the other context to be the one who's speaking. Yeah. That's what I, moves the room. I want to say also what, what really is, is manifest is this truth that gets lost in our, in our polarized, um, culture that all around reduces other people to stereotypes and um, symbols. You know, for example, I mean, you this con- we started this conversation with you talking about how these stories are our stories. These, they're, you know, these Greek tragedies are not meant to be the possession of people with PhDs <laughs> or, right. you know, people who get A's. Um, <laughs> that that and and what and then and what I want to say is kind of you know uh, being participating in 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 how you're bringing this these dramas and and not just these texts but other other texts that are classic in other ways um, but have stood the test of time mm. um, is that you watch all kinds of people engage with them and and what just is manifest is something I know but I think this is a piece of knowledge that is endangered in our culture right now is that you know the education gap the socioeconomic gap this this is not this is not it's not not a dignity gap and it's not an intelligence gap no and you know i mean that that education gap that how we turn everybody into a demographic right that 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 is one of the really important fault lines Mm. across a lot of the things that divide us which is so shameful but 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 to always remember that 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 just having education that that that's, this is not about a differential of intelligence no and i grew up in a small town in the middle of the country where education was not valued mm. and still some of the biggest and most beautiful minds i know you know were formally uneducated and i I really, and I think that that reality is such an important, to remember and honor that reality is such an, is going to be such an important piece of the kind of long-term healing that we need. And yeah. somehow that, in you, in bringing these, this particular work forward, it, it puts that reality up um, for, for others to see. Can I, um, can I make a suggestion? I know we're going to eventually run out of time. Yeah. <laughs> Although I'd love to yeah. talk to you for hours. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, the problem with the work that we do is that it's a conversion experience. Uh-huh. Um, so we could talk about, so we're blue in the face and, and people still won't believe yeah. <laughs> they, until they have the experience and people are welcome to come because all our work is free and most of it's open to the public um, and, and will be uh, for the foreseeable future for larger and larger audiences, uh, both online and physically. But I wonder if I could read to you a passage um, from a translation I'm working on right now. Yeah. That has yet to find an audience. Yeah. And then ask you the question I ask all audiences and have <laughs> okay. you respond from your gut without okay. any preparation. All right. So we can just sort of model for the Let's audience what this is. Okay. Um, um, 
with the with the caveat that all humans encounter all the things we've discussed at some point in time and that it doesn't have to be framed through any one identity or any one life experience. It's just about treating the person who's responding with humility and listening to what they have to say. So this is a, um, a passage from Oedipus at Colonus, which is the last play Oedipus wrote. Um, he was in his early 90s when he wrote it. And um, the, the, the freeze-dried version of the story, as I'm sure you know, is Oedipus... Um, you know, went went running from his uh, fate when he learned from an oracle at a young age that he was to uh, was going to sleep with his mother and kill his father. And thinking that his parents were his actual biological parents, he he ran away and then ended up doing the very thing the oracle said he would do hmm. when he was attacked by his father uh, on the way to Thebes, where he was running away from Corinth. Um, and he killed his father, sort of in self defense, uh, and all the people around him. Although it's arguably he didn't need to kill them all and then ends up solving the riddle of the sphinx and uh rescuing thebes from the bloodshed of this mythological creature and in exchange for that he is made king of thebes and given as a wife jocasta the queen who turns out happens to be his mother which he doesn't learn until he's had several children with her and a virulent plague comes to thebes and a new oracle is uh, unleashed that unless uh, Oedipus finds the perpetrator of the crime of the killing of King Laius, he'll be expelled uh, he, and expel that person or execute that person. Um, the plague will continue to ravage thieves. And over the course of Oedipus the King, one of the most famous plays of uh, antiquity, uh, Oedipus discovers that he was blind to his own identity and who he was and the crimes he had been perpetrating unwittingly. And uh, it, in humiliation, his wife, uh, Jocasta, and his mother takes her own life. And after she does that, he takes her hairpins and plunges them into his eyes and finally achieves a certain sight in blindness and wanders off in exile. And play, the play Oedipus of Colonus is the play that comes after that, even though it was the last play that was written by Sophocles at the end of his life. And um, here's and Oedipus comes to Athens with uh, Antigone, his daughter, leading him there. He's been on the road for years now. He's blind. He's been a beggar. He's had no home. He's been unhoused. And an oracle has foretold that if he goes to Athens and dies there, um, he will bring great fortune to Athens. So uh, when he arrives in Athens, he's um, immediately interrogated as to who he is by the people who live in Colonus, which is sort of a suburb of Athens on the outskirts of Athens. And standing in front of the sort of temple of the Furies, um, when the townspeople realize who he is, they immediately try to expel him and his daughter from their community. And this is what he says to those people. What is the point of a good reputation if all the goodness which makes Athens famous evaporates in an instant? It has been said that Athens, above all other places, has reverence for the gods, and it is only this, uh, the city is the only city strong enough to offer sanctuary and protection to a suffering stranger. Now, how can that be? For after making me get up from that ledge over there, without hesitating, you have resolved to drive me out of the city only moments after learning my name which seems to fill you with fear. What makes you so afraid? Surely it isn't my physical condition, or my actions for that matter, which as you know were not things I did, but things I suffered. 
If I must speak of them again and revisit the story of my mother and father, then please tell me this. How am I evil? I did what anyone in my position would do when attacked, I struck back. Even if I knew what I was doing, I ask you, does that make me evil? But I didn't know. That is the only thing I know for sure. I acted in ignorance while my parents knew full well what they were doing when they left me on the side of a mountain to die. And so, strangers, I'm begging you, by the gods, just as you made me leave the protection of that sacred grove, please protect me now, showing reverence for the local deities. Make no mistake, they see the actions of both the faithful and the profane, and they never let disrespectful men escape. Do not stain the city of Athens in all of its fortune with sacrilegious acts. With the help of the gods, receive this suppliant in accordance with your oath to accept and defend me no matter the cost. I know my face is repugnant, but do not dishonor me with your gaze, for I have come here, a faithful and holy man, to bring fortune and great gains to the citizens of this city. And when your ruler, whoever he may be, when he hears all of these things, he will understand. Until then... I ask you, please do not mistreat me. Okay, so here's the passage from Oedipus of Columbus. The question I ask all audiences, in spite of the distance of culture and time, in spite of everything that separates us from the Greeks who watched this play at the end of the 5th century, at the end of Athenian democracy, at the end of the Peloponnesian War, uh, what spoke to you across time in that passage? What touched you? What resonated with you today? What was true? <laughs> um, um, so many things that kind of contradict each other. Mm. Um, there's... There's... Um, There's a request. Um, well, there's first of all the the punitive impulse mm. that he is meeting that is so familiar. Mm. Um, the complexity of um, suffering. Mm. Um, I feel like that speaks so much to me about our world now. Um, you know, you, you, I, this is one of the things we didn't get to talk about, but I wanted you to talk about like the mm. meaning of tragedy. And mm. recently I heard this, um, quote that Elie Wiesel actually liked of Hegel, that the real tragedy, or is it the genuine tragedies are not conflicts between right and wrong, but conflicts between two rights. <laughs> Yes, Hegelian dialectic. Yes. Right, but I but I actually feel like the tragedy of our time is like two is so many wounds, right? So many sufferings that yes. can't be equated. Yes, and yet they're all so real. Yes, and 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 we try to not address the suffering. We want to address the problem or the issue, right, or the conflict, and we want to turn it into a right or a wrong, and. And I think, like what I, what you, what you keep saying, and what I hear in these passages is that these these plays, they won't let us do that because there's a wisdom that 
until we actually like we 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 deal with hate and we 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 address hate and we address outrage and we address anger but at the root of all of that is fear and suffering mm-hmm. um yeah yeah I mean, and so I, it's all perpetuated, and and yet yes. there's also a measure of self-deception right yes, there. Yes, of course, because of course. right because it's because this this speech is is a little bit too simple. It's right, and, <laughs> and it, it, it's an abdication of responsibility. Right, for it's a an crime. abdication of responsibility, even though it's also true that there has been genuine suffering and the very uncomfortable assertion that any of you would have done this in my place, that bears reflection. Yeah. See, and, and that's what I love about the Greek Greek tragedies in particular, but also ancient other depictions of ancient stories. Um, it, it is the complexity. Um, this is not, um, you know, this is a person with an agenda who was also suffering. Yeah. And at its core, he's asking for asylum. He's asking for protection. He's asking for us to help with address his suffering. And simultaneously, uh, his presence, his appearance, his smell, the crimes he's committed, his relationship to those crimes is um, can be seen as repugnant to many people in a very direct, visceral way. Um, I think about all the ways that on the way to work or home or walking through the streets of New York, there were already 65,000 homeless people in New York, people, unhoused people in New York prior to the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, that I ignore the suffering of people to my left and right intentionally and unintentionally in order to get through my day. The yeah. domestic violence I witness on the subway, the person who's um, struggling with addiction, the person. Yeah. And, and if I let it all in, I guess the fear is, and all of its complexity. You will be overwhelmed. Yes. Yeah. And, and, um, and so I think this is one of the reasons we as a species need the mediation of these stories to create spaces where we can feel what it's appropriate to feel and also acknowledge the complexity. We didn't come to tie a bow or on this and say that there's a message. We came here to ask more questions and problematize it and, and interrogate it while yeah. we, and so, um, you know, if I had a defi- I have two definitions of tragedy. The, the, mo- the easiest and simplest of them is that tragedy is a story about people learning too late and huh. usually milliseconds too late. Huh. And in those milliseconds in which usually they learn what they've done, um, they end up destroying themselves and generations to come. That to me is a scary potential of our century, right? Like, right. so, you know, right. you could say racially that we've, we're decades, centuries too late, but in a historical view, it's going to, it's going to be the blink of an eye, right? Right. It'll be a footnote. Yeah. Um, so that's one. And the other is um, stories, uh, this is Sophoclean tragedy, plays by Sophocles in particular, which we seem to be the main source of our inspiration over the last 10 years that we're branching out, as you mentioned, um, <laughs> you know, uh, is uh, stories in which everyone believes they're right or justified yeah. in what they're doing, and someone's going to die. And 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 both of those evoke really, you know, a strong visceral responses when I think about it. But the flip side is that may be what's happening on stage, but what is the impact of watching stories about people learning too late or watching people all believe they're right yet someone's going to die, uh, duke it out, 
on the audience that watches that transpire. And that's what I think we've been missing. People after watching our performances report feeling joy, sense of connection, buzzing, hope. And I think the hope in all of it is in, um, well, I mean, one of the first performances we did on a military base in Germany, there was an American soldier. Oh, I think to, you, you tell this story. Yeah, in, right? in my book, yeah. He stands yes. up and he says, uh, uh, I said, well, um, why did Sophocles write this play about this warrior that takes his own life, Ajax, after losing his best friend in battle and being betrayed by his own commanding officers? And this guy shot out from the back of the room. He says, because it's the truth. Oh, sorry. Let me back up. He said, he said at the end of our 90 minute interview, yeah. he said, he said, um, he said, uh, I said, why did he write this play? Why it's up? And the, this young man shot out probably 18 or 19 years old. He said, I think he wrote the play to boost morale. This is in 2009, 2010, maybe morale boosting. Well, what's morale boosting about watching a great warrior lose his best friend in battle and you know, ultimately against the pleading of his family, take his own. Before I could finish asking the question, the young man shot back, because it's the truth. All right. And, and, and then he said, and we're all sitting here shoulder to shoulder acknowledging it. And then he said, and it's not being whitewashed. And, you know, people think of tragedy that, as this. That brings hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just crazily enough. Uh, to sit together as a community and acknowledge the truth of war or the truth of addiction or the truth of domestic violence or the truth of COVID um, in as much as it reduces our sense of isolation and in as much as it's able to put into words, grammar and syntax, things that we thought only we had ever thought, let alone ever expressed, I think it can be the most joyous experience there is. Um, and what we see time after time, night after night, performing these plays is this sort of thing that overtakes audiences where, where people in the face of these tragic stories express their hope and joy. And that runs against the grain of everything that anyone's ever thought or taught about what Greek tragedy is. And I'm not saying that I understand it, mm -hmm. but if someone comes to see one of our performances, they will experience it. Is it a kind of relief, the kind of joy that comes with relief? I would like to think that that's how it all started for me. Yeah. Relief to know that I wasn't the only person who felt that way. There's so many things, so many more things I wish we could talk about. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm sitting here with all my notes. There's one I just want to mention. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I, just, I just want to mention from, it's in this category of, also telling the truth about how absurdly and terribly complicated things are, much more complicated and contradictory than we want them to be, but they are, mm. if people are involved. Uh, it was, I think it was during the performance of Those Winter Sundays, that, that poem about a father. Mm. And you had someone there who you, I think you curate, I and mean, you'd invited different people to kind of be the the res to respond, yeah. and then you open it up to wider circles. And, and for example, and this just seems to me like a good example and, you know, very much like alive and kind of even that passage you read a little while ago of um, somebody who's working with, viol with domestic violence mm. 
and but and working with it i mean dealing it obviously working to to end it to heal it but but taking in the context of generational trauma that forms people mm. and one of the messages in that poem was or one of the messages in how people took in that poem of robert hayden is that someone can that what does it mean to be a loving father? And, you know, one of the things that came mm. up in the conversation is that the complexity of us, right? That somebody can be a terrible, even violent husband and still a beloved, loving father. Mm. And, and, and that there are groups, and this woman, I believe it was a woman who was in there that you knew, that, 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 that they're working with domestic violence in this way, which is not merely punitive, I, th- I think I so you know where I wanted to come here yeah. at the end with you, and I think maybe that flows into it is i I see from where I sit mm. and i and and I choose to place my hope in and to throw my body at that hope that there is this what i what i what I think of as the generative narrative of our time, the dysfunctional narrative gets all the attention and is yeah. heavily investigated, and it's also true. Yeah. But there's also this story of our time that is unfolding about yes. people befriending complexity mm. and speaking the truth and t- genuinely asking, like, okay, so how do we rearrange our lives to be faithful to this truth? And mm. I feel like that also is on display when mm. I watch your events. So I just wonder if I ask you, what do you see? Of the, do you see the generative narrative of our time? What are some of the points along that? There's some, or there's some of the stories in there, um, mm. from where you sit, from this work you do. Wow. Um, well, there are so many ways I could respond to that. Um, I, I guess I'll say a couple of quick things. I I find immense hope in um, the fact that this generation, and I mean that the younger generation in particular, um, not only wants to talk about it, but demands that we talk about it. So that having a, an adolescent or even a person in their 20s in the room can shift the room no matter what their experiences are. Hmm. And that gives me hope for the future because I actually think at its core, what we're talking about is an incredibly repressive um, kind of Western European puritanical uh, sludge out of which we <laughs> seem to be crawling and emerging for the first time. And even in the last 20 years, think about all the things that have happened that seem like they're not going to unhappen, or at least it would take a while for them to unhappen. Even during the Trump administration, they didn't unhappen. You know, um, there's a, there's a, um, uh, there seems to be a, in, in, in crawling, you know, we, sometimes we go to other countries and like the UK and there's this, um, you can, it almost like feels like traveling back in time to, you know, our greatest generation, so to speak. And hearing what it sounds like to be part of a culture where expressing your, the complexity and the sort of moral distress one feels in face of that complexity is immediately silenced in some way. And it seems like the principal experiment of the 20th century was the wholesale silencing of various audiences. Mm -hmm. And it feels like we're crawling up out of that sludge. And so when I see on Zoom, 
thousands of people convening to be in this present tense, real time space with each other, getting messy and being vulnerable on the scale that we're now seeing it and see the potential for where it could go. Um, it gives me immense hope um, that out of the shared experience of um, this pandemic, um, we it, it might accelerate the very thing that needed to be accelerated in our culture, which is uh, the sloughing off of all of that, those impulses to silence uh, and to repress um, people speaking their truths and, and, and narrating their traumas and acknowledging the complexity of their experiences. So, I mean, that's one of the things, like seeing the sort of um, millennial generation serve as a kind of Greek chorus um, <laughs> yeah. for uh, the older generations. Mm -hmm. There's a theory that the choruses of Greek dramas were actually performed by 18 and 19 year olds called Ephebes. Mm -hmm. And I like that theory because it sort of, it, it almost seemed like the Greeks were taking the young people and exposing them to the complexity of adult life. But simultaneously they were in, in inviting older members of the community to reconnect with the sensitivity they had lost over the span mm. of their adult life mm. by seeing the mediating responses of younger people first to what was happening on stage. Mm. And, That's really interesting. And I think, so there's something about this younger generation's ability to acknowledge and talk about things like consent and power dynamics and privilege and trauma and hazing and all these things that we should really have been interrogating for a long time. Yeah. Um, but we, we because yeah, bullying we, wasn't invented with the internet. <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, but this goes back to what you were referencing earlier about these, yeah. these people who are working on the front lines uh, through um, the, the Rise Project, which is part of this uh, Center for Core Innovation in New York City, which is yeah. part of the larger sort of cure violence movement that sees, doesn't see perpetrators of violence as radically apart from victims. Right. And this goes back to Oedipus. Like it really, if you look at Oedipus, it's a narrative of early childhood trauma. Um, his feet are pierced. He's left on the side of a mountain. He doesn't, it's in his name. His name means pierced feet at Oedipus. Huh. It's, it's, it's early childhood trauma, which affects him epigenetically. Yeah. At, at, a, at some Even deep though they level. didn't know about epigenetics. But they knew about intergenerational <laughs> they curse. Did. They did. Right? Right. Yeah. That's what they're describing. Yeah. And, um, and, yeah. and so, and, and so this is the curse that, follows him. It's the curse that informs the violent way he lashes out after he's attacked on the road and kills everyone. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's, it's, it's part of him from the very beginning and it was given to him, it, it, you know, so by his parents. And yeah. so how do we break these cycles of violence? I think the only way is to see um, ourselves as both and perpetrators and victims and yeah. to, and to look at that really closely and so the only way to break that cycle is to acknowledge the traumas and the wounds that inform and, and create the violence that we enact on others. Yeah. Um, and that's why the work that gets done, you know, by violence interrupters of formerly gang affiliated youth in New York City, we partner with them quite a bit. Um, and that project you mentioned, the RISE project, is yeah. really what inspires us, you know, to go deeper and deeper into 
underserved communities, not because we think we have something for them, but because it they have something for us. You know, this yeah. is this is where it's at. I want to say something also that's really important to me in your work. Um, because, the, you know, some of what you just said, I know how it would be interpreted um, in, in, in kind of, okay, and here I'm going to be, I'm going to, you know, invoke a stereotype, but in the stereotypical progressive ear. Sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and just acknowledging that progressives are just as complicated as everyone else. Indeed. Right. But you, none of this is about. It, it it doesn't fall out along those lines. So, like, you know, something I loved when you did the Book of Job in Knox County, you you just had people from all of these ways we put people in boxes, red and blue, right? Democrat Democrats and Republicans, working class and elite, what or what whatever those categories are. Mm. You these these tragedies, these 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 human stories never did that right like every there's it, they just don't they don't they don't let us divide the world up or divide ourselves up in that way that's yeah i mean we, it really started for us with this this impulse to um put people real people non-professional actors or people who do other things into the story into the plays yeah with antigone and ferguson which i won't belabor but the objective of that project was, could we collaborate with folks in Ferguson to create a, a chorus or a choir that by design couldn't preach to itself? Hmm. That included um, activists and members of the faith community and youth, um, but also, um, and, and t teachers of Michael Brown's, um, but also police officers who responded to the, to the um, uprising. Yeah. Um, and police officers who were black, who hmm. responded to the uprising, who grew up in the same communities as the people who were Mm -hmm. who were um, you know, raising their voices. Um, that's something that we've honored and grown quite a bit over the last few years so that um, we're constantly bringing people into the telling of the story that are of the community for whom we're performing, yeah. but also people who are, you know, have radically different perspectives. And the performance you referenced of the book of Job in Knox County, we, you know, we got the, uh, the Republican mayor of Knox County, Matthew Starr, uh, Knox County, Ohio, at that time, had just voted 72% for Donald Trump to play the accusing angel. He was a real mm -hmm. sport to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, we, he didn't hesitate when I asked um, mm -hmm. because he knew, he trusted that this was not about casting him as Satan. Right. This was about performance as an act of service, but that his the service he'd be providing would also be bringing all these other people from parts of this conservative community who would never trust an invitation from a New York-based social right. impact director to come talk right. about the, you know, how do we heal after this election? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that, that goes a long way and, and that's part of the model. How do we create a chorus that by design cannot preach to itself and in so doing model the complexity and also the struggle that we're asking the audience to engage in after we're done with the performance. And that's become the sort of dominant collaborative community-based model yeah. of Theater of War Productions over the last four or five years. Oh, I know we're over time, but um, sure. okay. So um, yeah, <laughs> you know, you, you, I don't know how to, you, you, speak, you speak a lot about your theory of change. Um, I also hear you speaking so much and kind of living this being of service 
Um, I want to say anything about that kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah I do. I, I, um, I don't believe in much with any certainty. But what I've seen over the last 12 years of doing this work is people discovering that by telling their story and sharing their narrative, no matter how hard it may be, they're helping other people. And in helping other people, they're healing themselves. And that seems like a physical law of our universe almost. <laughs> and it gives me, you know, shivers thinking about how I've seen it on display over thousand, over a thousand events. Um, that by doing the thing that's hardest and doing the thing that, um, you know, may feel least safe. People talk about creating safe spaces. I'm not really interested in safety because um, with safety, there's no real risk. And, and I'm more interested in courageous space. And if we can create that courageous space where people take the risk of sharing what they haven't shared with others before on their own terms, um, yeah, we don't ask follow-up questions. You know, this is not about coercing people to go further, just like on their own terms they can tap into something which I heard recently called, and I really liked it, um, this phrase, the virtuous cycle of service. <laughs> um, this reflexivity between telling your story and being healed by the realization that it's helping other people mm. and it encouraging you to go deeper each time you tell it. Uh, and I'm not, I just think we've lost touch with that on a, on a big level. And that's how this all started. It's not just for the Western world, but in almost every culture. Um, and that's what the, I think the pandemic has given us the opportunity to reconnect with. Hmm. But now by virtue of technology like Zoom, we can do it. You know, our first performance on Zoom was for more than 15,000 people from 48 countries. Yeah. I mean, this is, a, this is an amphitheater that Sophocles could never have conceived of. Yeah. And it doesn't go away when the pandemic, please God. <laughs> so, so, and, and then, and then one to, day. To, yeah. And to that point, I mean, to be clear, you meet us yeah. at a really great, yeah. I mean, it's incredible inflection point as a company. Yeah. Uh, we're, um, we're never going back. Yeah. We're, we're, we're well, never, it's not just you, right? The, the right, world. The world, but, but, but gleefully, we are never going back. We tapped to, into something that was a gift that we didn't realize we possessed. Oh my goodness. I mean, mm -hmm. now we can bring people into the homeless shelter and we can bring the people who are experiencing mm -hmm. being unhoused into people's homes. Yeah. We had someone recently at one of our performances reveal during her comments, oh, I'm in the, I'm in the kitchen at the shelter. Yeah. She's just talking mm -hmm. into her phone via Zoom. Mm -hmm. Um. This is this is a whole new ballgame. And so our, the next phase of our operations is that we're going to build this digital amphitheater, not simply as a place where people meet digitally, but where we go physically and broadcast out into the world from some of the places people have never been. And we also bring people into those spaces. Uh, I love, I feel like this, this is what you're describing here is the generative narrative of of zoom <laughs> yeah, whether, whether right. you know and it's not this i mean it is right you know the specific platform but it it 
it, it's what this platform represents of our capacities, technological capacities, and the, and the platform will evolve. I do love the benediction <laughs> that I've heard you give. Um, I Someone's bet t- you say it. In different, so what would you give that benediction? Would you so, right yeah, sure. Someone recently chastised me for giving it, but I, I, I feel so compelled to say it because it's, um, I mean, look, at the end of everything that we do, every performance, every session, people do get bored of hearing me say it, but we have this kind of structure and the structure I think goes a long way to, to helping people see, we know where the walls of this room are. And since we know where the walls of the room are, then you can, you can take some risks with us in this space. Mm. And so one of the walls, the sort of stop walls, is we say, look, we didn't come here to tie a bow in this conversation on on being. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't come here to put a nice, you know, punctuation mark on this. Um, if we had one message to deliver to you across time, it's simply this. You're not alone in this room. You're not alone across the country and the world. And you are not alone across time. And then finally, after an early performance of one of our projects, someone stood up and answered the question I often ask audiences which is, in that case, why did Sophocles write this play? And this individual stood up and said something that we've been saying ever since, which is, I think he wrote the play uh, because he was in the minority in his community with regard to the compassion he felt for the individuals in his community that were struggling with the issues he portrayed in his plays. I think Sophocles wrote the play, this audience member said, to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Yeah. And and that actually that phrase came from but that phrase was originally made about newspapers. Newspapers you know of the early 20th century. Yeah. Uh, I mean I can't imagine that's the first person who ever came up with that formulation <laughs> in maybe well, in the it's English been language. It's quoted by yeah. many theologians, but it, I love it, it also in this. It honestly doesn't matter. I love it yeah. when we say it in our performances and then yeah. like for instance Jamondi Williams who is one of the yeah. actors who's also a public advocate for New York. I see him like in front of a crowd of 10,000 people saying yeah. comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, but I we don't mean it as a Hegelian dialectic. Like yeah. we yeah. we mean, we mean it as we hope we did a little of both for everyone here. Yeah. Um comforted that we can come together across very disparate walks of life and human experiences, comforted that we can have a response to an ancient story and be validated yeah. while listening to each other respond to it and afflicted that there's so much more work to be done in our homes, in our places of work and worship, on public transportation, wherever we live, to address the suffering of people to our left and right um, every day who may have the screams or the sounds of the screams of these characters in their heads, Hmm. though we can't hear them. Hmm. And it's with that sense of affliction, we always say that we leave you Hmm. with the hope that leads to more conversation Mm -hmm. and more complexity and to positive action. And, you know, for 45 minutes after every performance, when we used to be able to do this physically, I would talk to anybody that came within three feet of me. Um, and I'm a pretty uh, introverted person, actually. I like, I like to be in front of 10,000 people or in front of one person. Yeah. I'm like that. Too. Yeah. So, so I figured, I figured so, so, um, so, but all of a sudden all those boundaries are gone. And I'm, I'm always wondering, what's the half-life of this thing? Because it definitely is a biochemical thing that's happening where people are moved into the space where they're right. sharing in this way. Um, and in that 45-minute window or an hour window after it's over, what happens? And what new things are possible? We don't see Theater of War productions, events as therapy 
I, you know, I try to make clear that this isn't a religion. You know, we're not selling anything. There are no products. Um, our hope is actually, you know, that really it's just a door hmm. through through which people can walk to all kinds of paths of healing and an engagement. Um, and so um, that benediction is really also a kind of acknowledgement that this should never feel resolved. This should feel like something you have to chew on for some time and it can't be consumed. You can't check this box and say, oh, well, I had this experience and now I understand whatever right. issue. Um, and I think that's the other issue with our culture. You know, we're constantly consuming each other's suffering. Right. Um, right. And what does it mean to create something that can't be consumed? Um, and what new things are possible when that occurs? And yet that starts to change you from the inside so that you walk forward differently. That's the hope. Yeah. Well, Brian... Thank you so much. Thank you, Krista. I, you know, I, I'm grateful that you would want to have this conversation. Um, I know it's hard to talk about this work, so I hope people yeah, well, check I, it well, out. Well, I think I think you did a good job, and we'll figure out how to we'll figure out how to make it work. Chris is nodding his head. He's he's going to be my partner in that. <laughs> good, good, yeah. good, good. That, if you need anything, a, that will be a great creative challenge that we will we enjoy. have tons of audio. Yeah. Uh, we have, you know, every 30 plus performances on Zoom, but also stuff that preceded it. So yeah. if, anything you need, don't okay. hesitate to reach out. Um, okay. And, uh, and we'll provide it. All right. Blessings to you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Oh, um, when you all have a sense for when this might run, if you wouldn't mind letting me know. Oh, yeah, sure. No, we will. We we'll, have, give you, um, we'll give you good advance notice. We have, our, I, I meant to mention, but we have, not that you want to freeze this in amber, but... Um, our next big performance, like really big performance, we've been mm -hmm. commissioned by the Nobel Prize Foundation mm -hmm. to do the Oedipus Project as the uh, final culminating act of their climate science summit. And rather than having Nobel laureates speaking on panels out in the audience, definitively, we're going to make the Nobel laureates be the Theban chorus of elders. That's great. And, and, and we're hoping to get Greta... Thunberg to play the priest, mm -hmm. and uh, we're going after a whole slew of other sort of climate activists. When is performers. that? That'll be April 27th. So okay. if this comes out before then, um, our hope is to have it. that up on our website. You don't have to mention it. Yeah. Maybe you could, but we, we put it on our website and people okay. could sign up for it because it'll be the next. On the event horizon, that is the uh, one where we want to try to break the internet. Okay. So. Well, I, <laughs> I hope you do. <laughs> and, uh, and, I'll, and I'll continue to be in the room. I'm don't you have thank you for coming is there something yeah. this week oh uh, yes tomorrow night is our is our gun violence project yeah uh and uh, we have we've added to the lineup of panelists mark barden who's one of the sandy hook parents mm -hmm. um who's incredibly yeah i effective. think I've, I've met him yeah that's hard but yeah true yeah, yeah. okay thank you All so right. much thanks Take care. krista have a great yeah. week talk bye -bye. to you soon bye, -bye.